Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. From the Financial Times in London, I'm Matthew Vincent, and this is FT Investigations. After Brexit, which many saw as a rebellion of Britain's poorest regions against the wealthy elite in London, there are rumblings of another rebellion, this time against the companies that run Britain's privatised utilities. Years of austerity and rising bills have eroded the decades-long consensus that private companies could run things more cheaply and efficiently than the state. Now, opposition politicians tapping into that public disaffection are calling for these utilities to be renationalised. We're going to bring rail back into public ownership. We're going to renationalise the railways. We're also going to bring water and Royal Mail back into public ownership and democratic control. We're also going to have a stake in our energy supply industry. Why are we doing this? Because the model of privatisation over the last 30 years has resulted in, well, all of us being ripped off, increased prices. These sectors often being burdened by debt and sometimes, you know, used for tax avoidance as well. That's why we feel bringing them back into public ownership and democratic control will be able to reduce the cost of the provision of these services and also make sure that they're integrated into the development of our economy in the interests of everybody, just not a rich few. That was John McDonnell, Shadow Chancellor. In this programme, we're going to look at Britain's privatisation model as it relates to utilities and ask what has gone wrong with it and what can be done to fix it. With me in the studio to discuss this is Jonathan Ford and Jill Plimmer, who have written a series of articles for the FT investigating Britain's privatisation model. And we're joined down the line by the man who invented it, Professor Stephen Littlechild, and here in the studio by infrastructure expert Martin Blakelock. Jonathan, let me start with you. When was this privatisation model first devised, and broadly, how does the British model differ from others in the US and Europe? It really dates from the 1980s when Margaret Thatcher started her programme of privatisation. And while the initial few companies that were sold off were commercial entities, when it came to the privatisation of British Telecom, in 1984, there was obviously a need to find some way to protect the public against the idea of a private monopoly, essentially setting prices as it saw fit. And the mechanism that was chosen was what was called an incentive-based system of regulation, which meant that you regulated prices and you basically built into the regulation model an ability for private operators to earn a return that was linked to the value of their capital assets. But if they were able to exceed an efficiency hurdle and operate more cheaply or efficiently, 
then the operator was able to keep that surplus. And so that gave an incentive, in theory, for privatised utilities to effectively try and reduce the cost of operation. And the idea was that over time, this would be shared both between the public and the consumer and the shareholders of the company. It differs really from the situation in the United States, where you had a lot of private utilities historically, in that in the US, returns were simply capped. So you could earn a return of up to a percentage on the value of the assets. But beyond that, you essentially couldn't keep any more money. So it was felt that that didn't offer a sufficient incentive for people to be efficient. In Europe, there was much more of a kind of uh, mixed bag. But I would say the more classic European model was to separate the ownership of assets from the service provision. And often a concession would be auctioned of the right to operate those assets for a period of time. And what would you say the main purpose of the British model was? Simply to save costs on the part of the government or to deliver more investment, to deliver better value for money for consumers? What would be the main objective? Well, I think it was a mixture of those objectives. I think there was a feeling that a lot of the assets of utilities under public ownership had become run down and clapped out. And there was a need to reinvest in them. And it was seen that the private sector was potentially a vehicle for doing that. There was a feeling that the private sector would bring new ideas and innovation to bear in the delivery of services. And I think if you look, for example, at the telecom sector, you'll see that technology did play a big part in really transforming what was a pretty lacklustre performance in the 1970s into something which was much more market driven. And I think also, yes, indeed, there was a feeling that the private sector would be more efficient. And that efficiency, it should be said at the outset, was necessary because obviously the private sector demands higher returns than the public sector to finance these assets. So there was a need, if this thing was going to work, for the private sector to cut costs, improve services and just deliver a better outcome for the customer than had been the case in the past. And Professor Littlechild, if I can bring you in here, going back to those days of the privatisation of British Telecom, that sort of period, how did you first come to be involved in the process? Well, the government found that it had different advice coming from its Secretary of State for Industry and from the Prime Minister's economic advisor, Alan Walters. The department said, well, if we're going to privatize telecommunications, we should do what the Americans do with private companies, and that's to regulate them. And Alan Walters said, but they use a basically a cost-plus approach. That's not going to deliver efficiency improvements. So they said, well, what would you recommend? And he said, well, we need something to encourage the companies to produce more, particularly more telephones in this case. Let's give them a target, and if they meet that target, they can have a tax reduction. The government and the prime minister's advisor couldn't agree on this. I was asked to look at it and give my view. So I uh, looked around and said, what is the problem, really? And the problem seemed to be that there wasn't enough competition. The way of addressing the inefficiency problems and so on was to increase competition, including by restructuring the industries. And I was arguing, only if you can't get enough competition do you need a price control or some other form of regulation. Now, a problem with a price control of any kind is that the investors were saying, but look at inflation. We have to make some allowance for that. We can't be exposed to a price cap and inflation. Now, it so happens that Warburg's had made a proposal a few years earlier to deal with the possibility of borrowing from the Treasury 
and they had proposed that British Telecom would keep its prices 2% below the rate of inflation. And I thought, here's something we can use to put a cap on local calls. So I said, why not have X percent below the price cap on local calls, and you won't need to put any price cap or any regulation at all on long-distance calls. When were all these discussions taking place? I remember hearing a story that the formula was pretty much proposed over a weekend. Is that true? Well, I was asked to do a report which started in, I think, late November and had to be in in early January. So (laughs) this was my Christmas. And until just after Christmas, I wasn't convinced that I could find something better than either of these two alternatives. And it was only after thinking about it over Christmas that I thought this RPI minus two, as it then was, we can make that into some form of control that would be better than a rate of return control. So it was all put together, finally, in my report in about a couple of weeks, you're right. Um, With the benefit of hindsight, do you stand by the formula that you dreamt up in those uh, two weeks, or would you do things differently now? I think it's proved its worth in the sense that efficiency has undoubtedly increased across the board for all the privatized industries. Innovation is higher. They're more keen to meet customer preferences. This is partly because of the formula, but of course the formula uses the incentives of the profit mechanism and private ownership. And competition, of course, has played an important role too. I think the disappointment I have is that it's taking so long to do these price control reviews. I thought X could be set in a matter of weeks or at least months. Well, when I, when I had to set it myself for a dozen electricity companies, it took me a whole year. And I see that nowadays it takes at least three years. So A, the cost and time involved, and B, the involvement of the regulator in ultimately specifying what these regulated companies should do. Those are my reservations. And where I see a way through that is the increasing use of customers and customer engagement and both Ofgem and Ofwat and the Scottish Water Regulator have begun to take up that idea. If you can allow customer groups to negotiate with the companies, you can get these customer groups and the companies themselves to agree on a lot, and that would minimise the role of the regulator. You you mentioned then... uh off what the water regulator and Jill I'd like to bring you in at this point um, let's look at water privatization this is something you've investigated very closely how successful would you say privatization has been in this industry well I think one of the interesting things is that England is the only country to have fully privatized its water companies in this way handing them out to regional monopolies in 1989 I think last year, and what tipped off some of the discussion around this, Thames Water, which is the biggest water company in England, was fined £20 million for polluting the River Thames in an incident that the judge at the time described as a deliberate act. Thames Water, yes, has been a very high-profile case, as your expose has demonstrated. But do you think that there are other sort of problems in the industry which apply more generally, that are sort of more deep-rooted in the process or the way the regulator reviews the sector? Where would you say the main problems lie? Well, I think one of the issues is that the water companies haven't really invested as much as they should have in the water and sewage companies and in services. So in the case of Thames Water, at least, they have ramped up the debts. 
extracted the profits, paid hefty dividends to investors, not paid much corporation tax, and at the same time ramped up bills for customers. There's a study by Greenwich University which claims that consumers in England are paying 2.3 billion more per year for their water and sewerage bills because of this uniquely privatised system. And you mentioned earlier that Britain, or certainly England and Wales, the only areas where this particular form of privatisation has been attempted. How does it compare with the way it's been done in other countries? I think a lot of countries, including France and Germany, have used a concessional model where they let long-term contracts to construction companies or specialist utility energy companies. In fact, many of them have also been taken back in-house. There's been some studies that show that they have also been more expensive for consumers and not necessarily kept up with water maintenance. Martin, I'd like to call on your expertise at this point. We've heard about a number of the problems that exist. Do you think that the current model is sustainable? Probably not. We've now had 25 years since the original privatisations. And one could argue that the actual service delivered to customers has improved in one way or another. It's not perfect, but it's improved. But when you look at the utilities corporately, I think that there is a question mark over how sustainable they are. Part of this has come about because of the lowering of interest rates, particularly since year 2000. That has allowed cheap money to be available to the utilities cheaper than perhaps the regulator has actually estimated their cost of capital to be. As a result, they've been able, with a little bit of financial engineering, with offshore subsidiaries and all the rest of it, to financially make much higher returns than perhaps the regulator and the public in general see as an acceptable rate, particularly in water, which is a natural monopoly. But it's the same in other public service utilities too. And the Regulations, as they were set down 25 years ago, are a bit inflexible. They don't allow the regulators really to examine closely and intervene at all into how utilities finance themselves. Many of those utilities are quite indebted. You've only got to have a major incident coming along. Could be flooding, could be sewerage, something like that, which means they have to dip into their back pocket to maintain services before the regulator, you might say, can adjust things to perhaps compensate them for some problem which perhaps may not have been the fault of the utility in the first place. But still, the utility has had to bear the initial brunt of what's gone wrong and their balance sheets are so indebted that they can't really do that. The private sector will be happy to invest in and manage and deliver a public service by owning utilities, provided they can control the risks. Now, some kinds of infrastructure asset, you can ring-fence those risks and they can control them. In others, it's more difficult. Railways in particular, worldwide, the experience has been there are relatively few privately owned passenger railway systems around. And when you look at the underlying finances of the UK's railway system, then about 80% of the money to cover ongoing costs comes from government. The other 20% comes from passengers. So with railways, you could argue much more strongly it should be, call it, nationalised in some form. Arguably with water, you could say the same thing, but 
water tends to be regionalised, so you get smaller utilities and those utilities can control their patch much more easily. Jonathan, if Martin is right and the regulation is not working properly, the outcomes are unacceptable, debt levels are problematic, what are the options then for fixing the situation? Well, I think, and I totally agree with Martin's analysis, that you know one of the things you don't want is the perception that these private entities, which are monopolies in many cases, are simply a licence to print money. And I think... You know, you can look at things which clearly need to be fixed, such as the governance has become excessively focused on financial outcomes and engineering of financial outcomes. There's been insufficient focus on the underlying task by the owners, i.e. supplying water or running train services. And I think that it's very important that if the private sector is to be involved at all, there needs to be a sense that it's being rewarded for real risk that is being transferred from the public and the customer to a private operator. I suppose the question then is, is ownership the key issue? Does ownership have a role to play in reform? I think conceivably it could in sectors where there is limited prospects for meaningful competition, and I would include in those water and railways. There is also a case to answer about whether private sector returns can always be justified by the performance that there is, and whether the job could be more cheaply done by the state And I think if you go back to the debates around, well, particularly, I suppose, the underground about a decade ago, when the question arose whether the maintenance of tube lines should be put into a private sector vehicle or kept under the state ownership, in the end, that argument was resolved in favour of the public directly funding the maintenance of the tube. I think, you know, there's a clear case to answer about whether, you know, regulators can, by chasing around after private owners, really, you know, provide a meaningful alternative to competition. I think there's also a question about whether the job could ultimately be done more cheaply by the state. As Jill mentioned, there is this simple calculation one can do about the water sector. If you take out private returns and substitute for government money, government borrowing, there's a substantial conceivable saving there. Just one point about government ownership against private ownership. The government's cost of capital will always be cheaper than the private sector. But historically, there have been a number of studies to show that the private sector implementation or execution of capital projects has usually been more efficient than the public sector. And if the private sector own the assets, then they usually maintain them much better than the public sector. Public budgets get squeezed for political reasons, and one of the first things that gets hit is the maintenance on capital assets. And here we're talking about utilities, not so much telephones, which I don't really consider as a utility much anymore, but in terms of energy, water, ports, airports, then we're talking about long-term capital assets, which have a longevity longer than most governments, and they do need to be maintained. I don't think you can dismiss nationalisation out of hand simply on the grounds that the 1970s were so awful or British Leyland didn't work. But clearly there are big questions about whether the public sector is as assiduous and careful an owner of these assets as the private sector. What makes it very difficult to judge what role 
the public sector may have in all of this is the fact that although there's a lot of agitation for renationalisation, particularly from the Labour Party, really they've yet to explain precisely what path they want to take and what beyond the change of ownership they would do with these assets were they to be transferred back into the public sector. So I think until we have a lot more clarity on that, it's not an obvious destination for things to go in. Coming back to the actual nationalisation process, then the lawyers would love it. There's years of work involved with the lawyers. And also the banks would be in an interesting position because you'd need quite a lot of money for government to buy out the private sector owners of some of these assets. Not perhaps so much with railways, but perhaps more so with other utilities. And many of these utilities have significant amounts of debt in their financial structure. So you're having to buy out the lenders, tough on the shareholders. They can perhaps lose their shirts. But the debt providers, and usually it's bond investors, who are very international, possibly based overseas somewhere, even in tax havens, Luxembourg, wherever. If they're suddenly going to find, oh dear, oh dear, their bond that they had in a UK utility has collapsed they're going to be a bit worried about the UK and its credit rating. Some compensation might be due, but it would get very messy indeed. And it doesn't do anything for UK's financial, political stability, and international investors would look poorly on such a scenario. One's seen it a little bit in renewable energy, for example, in southern Europe, when governments have suddenly changed the feed-in tariffs for renewable energy projects suddenly cut them in half. And oh dear, oh dear, the impact that that's had on the international investors, it hits the national credit rating. So it's a step that one wants to be very careful about taking. And one needs to look at other options first before you take such a drastic step. What I see to be the problem is really circumstances have changed in 25 years and the financial world in particular has changed enormously. And the current regulatory regime is a bit inflexible. I agree with Professor Littlechild that actually there's no reason why you couldn't review prices every two years, say, instead of the current every five years. Not only that, I mean, Offwater has woken up a lot to what is going on, but if anything, they've actually made the monitoring of the utilities under the regime they're currently reviewing for the next five years more complicated than simple. And I think one needs to have a balance between simplicity, responsiveness, and you will probably get the public back on side quite quickly if once they found that they were getting something which was value for money. I've seen this work in other countries where they have privatised public service utilities and infrastructure. And one often has some form of licence or concession between a private sector company and a government. And there is a kind of a cap on the profitability that the private sector can achieve through the services they deliver. But also there is a life belt so that should circumstances change for one reason or another, they're not going to lose their shirts either. And there's a proper partnership, a financial partnership, that they know that within a margin they're going to do all right provided they behave properly and deliver the service required. We have a much more adversarial type of situation here, surrounded by lawyers who love to have adversarial confrontations in the courts. Well, it's not terribly helpful. On that point, how crucial is the role of regulators in safeguarding the public interest and why has it not worked in a way that many find acceptable? 
I think it's interesting to see that now, as I say, we've had 25 years of privatised utilities. Not one, to my knowledge, has had its licence revoked. And there is no better way of getting privatised utilities, you might say, to perform and behave by actually knowing that if they don't meet the targets, their licence could come under threat. Now, that will induce, I'm sure, a lot to perform rather better. And perhaps they would not have such aggressive financial structures and they would focus much more on the actual service that they're meant to be delivering. I agree with that. I think one of the risks with the regulatory system or one of the pressures on the regulator is this requirement to keep the show on the road and to ensure that companies have sufficient finance to fulfill their tasks under their license. And there is a danger in that, that the regulator interprets that as a duty, essentially, if you like, to bail out operators who make mistakes and protect them from the consequences of their actions. And I think cumulatively, over a very long period, certainly in things like the water sector, I think you have seen the private sector sort of cotton on that effectively there is this circular duty that the regulator has, which means that they are pretty safe. As long as they broadly play by the rules and they don't do anything outrageous, they will essentially be able to continue to operate in quite a comfortable way. Martin, is renationalisation the answer? Something the Greenwich Group identified is that in many countries, European countries, they have taken back some of their private sector, particularly water companies, back into, call it the public sector, but it's really what they call municipalisation, where it's owned by local towns, local boroughs. That actually gives customers much more direct contact with, you might say, the owners and the operators. It's not bringing the ownership back into central government in Paris or Berlin or whatever like that. It's more regionalization, municipalization, which in many ways is the model which is followed in the United States, which is a federal structure. So those are the other other alternatives that might be considered. I'm not suggesting necessarily they're better because there's a very famous case going on in, I think it's Ohio, about pollution in a river from a municipal water company where I think some of the councillors might have ended up in jail. So not perfect. Let me give the final word then to Professor Littlechild. You were there at the very outset. We've heard about some of the possibilities for the future. Are there any observations you would make about the way forward for privatised utilities? Well, I've been fascinated to hear this discussion. I think it's been very apposite and reflected a lot of present concerns. I was puzzled by some of the comments, for example, the suggestion that these privatized utilities have not invested enough. Um, It seems to me the quantity and, for that matter, the quality of investment is so much higher than one could ever have expected from nationalized industries. I can't see this as a legitimate criticism. Secondly, it seems to me the extent of competition has been much greater than has been allowed by some commentators. I do think there's a widespread concern that profits are too high. They've had it too easy. I think, in some sense, the success of this incentive regime has outstripped the expectations. I mean, it was assumed that a reasonable price would be set and companies would be given the incentive to beat it. And they have indeed beaten it. And so people have then said, well, the regulator set the wrong price. I think this is a difficult issue. And I would have thought that some possibility of sharing excessive gains might be worth exploring. And I think customer groups might do that. 
The fourth issue is finance that Martin raised, and I think this has been a concern. Regulators on the whole had the power to look at the finance side of the equation and at balance sheets, but they preferred not to, partly because they were so unfamiliar with such issues. I think they may need to get more involved in that in the future. And the final way forward that I think has been hinted at, and Martin, I think, touched on that, the possibility of providing more competition, putting projects out to tender, in a sense, to reduce the extent of regulation of the networks and to allow more to be done by competition. That's been done quite a lot with transmission networks, offshore lines, for example, in in the electricity sector. And I think there's more scope for that. So um, my solution to the problem of bad regulation or poor regulation would be to have rather less regulation and see if we can increase the, the scope for competition and for customers to take a bit more of the burden. That's certainly a very different view to some of those others that have been put forward. My thanks then to Jonathan, Jill and our guests Martin Blakelock and Stephen Littlechild and thanks for listening. We're going to take a look at rail, one of the other big privatised utilities, in our next episode. So look out for that on FT Investigations, which can be found on all the usual podcast apps. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.